This is a trigger warning from the legal department. Just reminding you that this shit is pretty heavy. And that's okay. Take a deep breath. Don't forget to hydrate. Wash your fucking hands. Good afternoon, friends. It is a lovely June afternoon here on the Jersey Shore. And actually the same day that this episode with Police Chief Chris Shung is about to air. And it's unusual to record the intro right before or on the same day. However, it's literally taken me that long to process and to think about what I'd like to say about this amazing conversation. And it's funny too, because right after the conversation, I did a post on LinkedIn about just like, just mind being blown really is is what the gist of it was. And I'm chuckling because even the anticipation of the conversation, like that post was my top performing post all, all month, I think, probably even longer. And I frankly don't do LinkedIn really very much. But anyway, so even the anticipation, I'm not the only one. And so anyway, friends. Chris Young is a chief of police in Mountain View, California. And for those of you who are not familiar, this is the the home base of of Google. Chris was actually, oh, can you hear it? These are my, this is my dog and my best girlfriend's dog. They're, They're having a puppy reunion and so they're playing in the background. But anyway, Chris was actually a, a buyer during my time representing a Code for America spin-out company called Next Request, so we have that in common. We also, you know, just, we get into it, but there was a a point at the end of our interaction or at the end of my time while in uh, Silicon Valley where Chris was trying to recruit me, actually, and it was one of those, like, life-changing decisions, like, to really, but anyway, so we'll get into that, and We met at a conference. He was a keynote, and I, and I talk about this in the episode. But I, I don't. I'm. I fall into camp. You know, not a great deal of respect for police officers, or at least the current state of the profession. And again, we go into detail. But this conversation. Oh my gosh. Well, one, I don't hold back um, and and share. And and Chris. Yeah. There, there is so many transferable lessons from what Chris shares in this conversation. Whether it's about, you know, it's not what you say, it's what people hear. Or that when you can have a team that operates with psychological safety, you know, it's, it's, all, it's a guarantee about what they're going to be able to produce together. And so lots and lots and lots of transferable nuggets, actionable insight for the the tech revenue realm as well. And yeah, I, I mean, we get into servant leadership, we get into humility and vulnerability and team selection and maintaining cultures. And we get into information and the state of information, including body cams. We get into you know, our time going through a, a enterprise buying motion as a buyer and, and seller. We get into the current state of police and community relations and what Chris has done 
pretty exquisitely to not just repair trust and build systems that maintain said trust once it's repaired, but Chris is on the speaking circuit teaching other departments how to do the same. This, of course, does not even include how he has developed the most sophisticated cyber crimes division on the planet and how he also teaches other departments around the world to do the same. And so when I think about the the humans that I've met over the course of my entire life that are making an impact and driving community and bringing people together and working through are creating spaces that allow groups of people to work through conflict and value judgments. And hell, there's even a call to action in here for, for the tech um, scene to, de- to develop more tools to maybe some reverse some of the damage that we ourselves have done with algorithms and social media. So the audio quality that you'll hear, uh, it's, it's, there's, it's not bad at all, but you know, recovering perfectionist, really, I've been, I've been in recovery for you know, 12 hours now. Um, this was 100% uh, on me, and we were, you know, pulling from my Wi-Fi, and it, we only dropped it once. There was one point, I think, when Chris is speaking about ego, where you can see the, the maybe a little bit of the disconnect. But you know what? Here's to making it happen anyway. With that, I'm going to stop talking about this episode and just get it out there because it is fire, fire, fire. Final thought. We're going to play a new game here at the Revenue Real Hotline. And that new game is going to be to open up the voicemail for friends and listeners that have thoughts or additions to add to the conversation and play those voicemails and contributions to bring more voices again to the table and, and maybe make the this space a little bit more asynchronous. But anyway, so if anybody has any thoughts observations, questions, comments, whatever, I would encourage you, give us a ring at 646-470-0248. Absolutely no rules about, you know, name, location, none of that shit. If you'd like to stay anonymous, stay damn anonymous. If you'd like to share, you know, who you are and how to reach you, definitely have at it. But anyway, I'd, I'd be very interested to hear what what you guys have to say about this one. And I'm sure everyone else would as well. So again, that number is 646-470-0248. It's just a voicemail line. And, you know, again, all are welcome. Judgment-free zone. And, you know, pulling pulling in these recordings on the show. So just so you know, the, this is going to be opened up to everybody. And so with that, the great, the great, the great, Chris Young. Oh, also, we both have silent H's in our, our name. I don't think... I've met anyone else with the silent age, so I feel you there, Chief. All right. Enjoy, friends. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Chief Chris. Okay, so I, I'm. it's taken a while to unravel the captain, but I, I know that you've been promoted <laughs> since then. So right. Chris Young, Chief Chris Young, welcome to Revenue Rail. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Okay, so have you listened to any of the episodes? Do you know what you've gotten yourself involved in? I have no idea what I've gotten myself into, so I'm just going to buckle up and hope for the best. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so like right off the bat, like if there's anything that we talk about or say, I'm not expecting this to be an issue, but if there's anything upon deeper consideration where you would prefer 
you know, that not to go public, definitely let me know. I can certainly do whatever needs to be done um, in post-production. The target audience is the experienced tech seller. There tends to be a lot of content out there, how-to content for somebody that's just getting started in, in the profession. Not as much around, you know, kind of growing at that five, six, seven year mark and beyond. And I think the work that you do around trust and repair and maintaining um, once you've built it and then, you know, giving back to your profession, right? This is completely applicable. So with that said, I think it would be a fun place to start the conversation around our origin story, if you wouldn't mind. Sure, sure. So listeners, Chief Chris was actually, he was a buyer um, or a prospect that while I was out in San Francisco with a company called Next Request, we were selling um, software to municipalities around FOIA, right? Public records requests. Yep. And, but Chris, you were you were in a different territory, which would make sense to, to our listeners. And so the nature of our relationship was a little bit different, but if memory serves, you were a speaker at um, one of the conferences that I had gone to and maybe even have been the keynote. And that the way that you were speaking about the role and responsibility of a police force. And it was just so divergent from a lot of the conversations. And it just, I think I made a beeline directly to you right after you spoke and and then we kind of took it from there. But like impressed, loss of breath, excited, interested to learn more. Like I can't, I can't think of any like strong enough adjectives to describe what I was feeling when I was listening to you speak. And yeah, I like, what do you remember about how you and I first came to be? You know, it's, it's, I, I get these glimpses and you're, what you've described, I do get, um, I'm like, yeah, I, th- I think I remember that. And, and I don't remember what conference it was, but definitely like on the, the topic of what police departments should be like. And um, I don't know if you want me to go into that now, if we want to yes. go into it later, but um, it's definitely, you know, it's, for me, it's something I'm really passionate about. And I think the advantage of moving up through the ranks is with that uh, positional authority, you do have a little bit more influence and, and people will tend to listen a little bit more, right? And, and um, as I've been sharing um, what my thoughts are on that, I, I think there's a growing audience and yourself included where it's like, you know, that's really what it's about. And and I'll cut to the chase and say that, you know, with, with police work and, and public service, I think a lot of times we forget that it, we are public servants and, and we we are here to serve others, right? And that means um, putting the ego at the door, putting a lot of, um, you know, just the machismo or, or whatever stereotypes come with um, that job when you hear about police officers. And unfortunately, I think, you know, society is very influenced by the role of an officer of what they see maybe on Netflix or Amazon Prime, right? And I will also say that officers are also influenced by that too, because, you know, a lot of them, um, I'm going to laugh telling the story. I remember when I first started, I saw some photos of our undercover unit and they were all dressed and they look like, um, Miami vice. Right. I mean, and here we are in the Bay area, we're nowhere near like Florida, but they dressed just like them. And to me, my takeaway was, you know, I think we, we often forget, you know, the influence that the entertainment industry has on what we think in our heads, what officers should do. So circling all the way back, 
you know, for me and, and now sitting in the role of a police chief, um, what I tell our officers in our organization is, you know, we each come to this job with very different personalities, different skill sets, different strengths and weaknesses. Above all else, we're human. And we need to let society see that, right? Good, bad, or ugly. We, you know, if society wanted robots to patrol and police them, um, you know, I think we've seen enough movies of what that might look like. And I don't think that's something we want. We want officers who serve with compassion and humility. Um, and so at times that does call for us to break away from the stereotypes and the, the norms of what we think. Wow. I'm, I'm excited. I know that we had one other touch point, I guess, in the past year um, about RJ, Roderick, and you had mentioned about connecting again, just the two of us. And I, I wanted to do that and I'm glad to do that, but I'm even gladder to have this conversation recorded to bring um, to an adjacent audience that is also very much in need of, of the message that you are advocating for, which is a drop in the machismo or leave the machismo at the door are, and to serve with humility. And I mean, I think about serving buyers with humility and prospects with humility and showing up in early in relationships where you don't necessarily know the other person and, you know, silencing the confirmation bias about what that person is or what they represent and just showing up and being present and vulnerable first, which I know that you are able to do and, and I know that you teach your team to do, but also, I mean, you had me at humility. I mean, it's such a, I, I know that, I, well, you and I, we haven't really spoken about what happened for me, like after leaving San Francisco and, and the decision about whether or not to stay and pursue, you know, a career in law enforcement, which I'm excited to talk about versus, you know, take care of my own mental health and rock bottom would be a good thing. Like, so Chris, I left San Francisco and like immediately checked myself in to get myself back on track, um, which frankly, I had never been on track as someone that also grew up in a Western society where we don't talk about emotions. They're not welcome conversation. Um, but anyway, I mentioned that because through my journey, I, I came face to face with humility and I, I don't. I don't know if I would have ever gotten there had it not gotten that dire, but I'm always really taken to hear someone speak of humility and its importance in relationships, especially where there's probably some friction and or at least some some deep value judgments, I guess, coming into the experience. And you know what? For for good cause in many, in many realms, which is another thing that you and I have never spoken about, but I'm, I'm thinking of my black friends um, and, and human beings that are I'm not friends with, but also, you know, that maybe do not associate the sound of a siren as, you know, help coming to the rescue or, you know what I'm saying? And so mm -hmm. it's yeah. all the more important to be able to kind of show up from a place of vulnerability and, and, and humility. However, I, I really empathize with, with men um, in particular and those that are in a profession where that stereotypical male persona is, is celebrated, I guess you could say, 
in the media mm -hmm. stories that are depicted. And so like, I guess this is a good transition. Like how, when you're building a team and listeners, just so you know, uh, Chief Chris is also was in the process four years ago of um, designing one of the most sophisticated cyber crimes division in the world. So much so that the departments around the world, again, were coming to him in Mountain View um, to be able to like seek out advice or direction or what to do. Um, then I also, uh, Chief Chris, think about the, the work with tasers uh, and taser the body cams when you guys first brought those on. And so all of the work that you've done, like how, how does that, when you think about the people to bring on to the team in the current state of affairs, like how do you go about identifying these characteristics in humans early on? You know, it's, it's interesting. I think um, there's a, a lot of so many like thoughts and, and almost like tweetable quotes came to mind as you were talking. <laughs> um, you know, it's I, for one, uh, that's really stands out is something I tell our, our team a lot is um, it's not what you say, it's what people hear. And I think that's a lot, there's a lot of crossover into the the areas and the, the, the sectors that you deal with, right? Because in, in sales, um, you can have your sales sales pitch, you can have your reputation, you can be the best salesperson ever, and you can walk into a meeting in a room and start talking, but if it doesn't land and it's not heard, like what your intent or what you're trying to get across is not heard by the people in the room that you're pitching to, you might as well just forget it at that point, right? And that skill to me is, is key. And when you look at building a team to do whatever it might be, you know, um, one of my old bosses uses the uh, analogy of, of the, you know, putting the right people on the bus and then putting them in the right seats and then also rotating them around every once in a while. So they, they learn each other's roles. Right. And that's a very simplified way to talk about an organizational culture shift that um, gets away from, if I'm using law enforcement, a, a kind of a, old school paramilitary follow orders, don't, don't think creatively and converting that into a um, dynamic, adaptive, growth-minded organization where anyone throughout the chain of command intuitively knows um, when to take action, what to take action. And if they don't know the answer to something that they, they have an open growth-minded mindset to, you know, they hit failure, it's okay, let's learn from that and move on. Um, so if, if I look at this scenario when, you know, we're trying to promote somebody, right, there's the technical skills that people come to a position with um, that they've learned over time. And, and I'll, I'll translate a little bit to sales where you might be phenomenal at sales, um, but that doesn't translate into the fact that you're going to be a great leader, right? So the, the best hope is you do. The best hope is you are a great salesperson and you have the people skills. The second part of that is what I look for when we look at promoting folks is, is that people skill. Do you have a, an acute self-awareness of how you land when you speak, your, your nonverbal cues? Um, do you walk into that room? And here's where humility comes back in. At least in our organization, you better be ready to serve everybody um, and serve to the point where you know you are looking out for the needs of everyone around you and it's not about you. And that's a very different, um, I know culturally that's very different in law enforcement. I would venture to guess it's different in, in sales as well, where it could be, you know, very much of an ego or pride or, you know, look how much I've, I've sold or whatever type of environment. But truly, if you want to build dynamic teams, um, you know, it, imagine yourself as a team member 
you want to work for someone who's all about themselves or all about, you know, the, the big guy? Of course not. You want to work for someone who you know has your back, who you know that if and when you fail and trip up, that they will be there to pick you up and dust you off and learn from it. And even if the team fails as a whole, that they're going to stand there and, you know, take ownership of that and, and learn from it and move on as well. Um, that's called psychological safety. And when you have a team that can operate with psychological safety, you have a very tight team. And I guarantee you, they're going to be able to accomplish way more. Wow. Okay. So it's so crazy that you just use the word psychological safety. Yeah. In sales, we call it like the bro culture. And when you look at some of, I'm not sure if you've read, um, I think it was Aaron Chang. She was a, a reporter for Bloomberg. She wrote this book called Brotopia, and it really gets mm. into some of the gender dynamics in, in Silicon Valley, which was something like when, when Me Too hit, Chris, it was 2016. That's when I was out there with the Trump campaign. And for me, like what, what really started the unraveling of, you know, 10 plus years of getting really excellent of icing away feelings, right? Not feeling anything, anything until they revolted during that time period. And it, I, so, I mean, gosh, there's so many places where I could bring that. So with, in tech in particular, it's a, it's a very male, space, like just here's one caveat, 97% of venture capital last year, 97% went to white men, 97%. So never mind that this is the greatest period of wealth creation that the world has ever known, right? Most of the population is not even able to get a, a play, a, chi a chip on the board or a, a game piece on the board. Um, but so now back to psychological safety, that's a very hard thing to strike on sales floors because it is a performance business and there needs to be some sort of predictability on that performance, I guess you could say. But at the same time, if you do not perform, you lose your job. And there's even a word for it. We call them PIP plans, performance improvement plans. <laughs> oh, yes. And and so what, now back to the tech space, like I 80 when you've got, you know, 97% of leaders right at the founding level are white men, they tend to pull in human beings from their networks, people that look like them have similar experience sets. And so when you look at the leadership dynamics in tech, right, it's 85% also white men, no offense, white men, just tossing out numbers. And the demographics on that team generally play out, you know, 80, 20 from there. However, that said, to step out to to find the balance and strike the balance between bringing in different humans to let go of some of the predictability as a as a sales boss right just to distinguish between leader and a boss um and then hit psychological safety like that is a big damn question mark at this point that we're still and I know at least on this podcast we've had a couple conversations about like how to do psychological safety in a performance profession but I, I mean, it's, it's starting with the conversations of how to get there. But I, I wrote about in a mental health article last year for Sales Hacker on um, the concept. I think it was Google did. They call it Project Oxygen. And it was they went deep into all the the character traits that make for an exquisite manager. 
of which technical acumen, well, obviously psychological safety, that was actually added to the list about two years after when they redid this the study or went deeper. But technical acumen, right, having the ability to do the job tends to be one of the only character traits that we look for when promoting someone into a management position, um, right? They can do the job, they can sell, but that does not make for a human that knows how to lead, knows how to coach, or knows how to create psychological safety at that level. And so I guess when you are pulling or promoting someone into a manager position for the first time, what kind of training, what kind of skills, what kind of conferences, um, where, what do you do to help bridge that gap between, you know, having the technical acumen to be an officer um, and then transitioning into that, that more of a leadership role? So what we look for now, you know, obviously, you, I think having the technical acumen gives you a seat at the table to test, right? That makes you qualified. Um, and then what we also, what I really acutely look for is how aware is this person and how willing are they to learn and to um, even the ability to say, I don't know what I'm doing, right? You don't want someone who's who's got so much of an ego. When we look at promoting, it's great when you have an informal mentor that comes up next to you who doesn't have an ego as well, because they are able to share their failures over the course of their career with the intention and the goal of using those, those falling down times to share like, you know what, we all fall down and here's how we get up and dust ourselves off and learn from that and come up even stronger. And on top of that, we have a formal uh, program that we're going to be instituting this year as well as, you know, new people who are in positions of promoted to the positions of front level supervisor or manager um, we've devoted some funds to have uh, formal um, coaching, right? So someone who has the, the formal education on a coaching, career coaching type of thing to just help everyone kind of be the best selves. Because we understand, you know, I, I don't promote people um, that are carbon copies of me or my personality. Um, to the contrary, you know, we look for people who are going to fill very different seats on that bus and who will provide different viewpoints to me because I know as a leader, I don't need a bunch of people to give me the same, um, <laughs> what I want to hear, so to speak. I need, you know, to protect the viability and the, the momentum of our effort, leadership strategic efforts. We need people on that bus who are going to um, push back um, and to, to think creatively, think differently. And, and ideally they come from tremendously diverse backgrounds, which will give them that diversity of thought and creativity, which I think is our key ingredients for a really high performing team. I'm, I'm laughing knowing that uh, being on the receiving end of one of those, a couple of those conversations and, you know, Chris, I don't think we've ever spoken. So listeners, one of the hardest decisions that I've ever had to make career-wise and even just like adulting-wise was the decision to leave San Francisco and, you know, get myself back on track versus pursue um, a career in law enforcement with C Captain Chris, now Chief Chris at the time. And it, you know what, Chris, like, I don't think we've ever spoken about this. So I have, I tend to, I come from a, a town that was so corrupt where children were dying. Okay. So think of super fund sites like Aaron Brockovich, right? It was in the water, cancer uh -huh. and water. 
the superintendent of schools, the last school that he built was named Sibagagi after the water company. He's still in federal prison and has been there since I graduated college. So since 2005, I, my dad and his friends were very active. Um, and when I was learning about current events, he was, it was his turn to run for school board. And, you know, the teacher actually had to make a rule, no more articles about Amy's dad. Right. And so just got to really, <laughs> oh, and not, let's not be confused. Oh, there was a, a pipe bomb that was actually put in the tailpipe of our car. Um, actually, it was the neighbor's car. So it was some brainchild. It was a child of somebody else that was already on the board. Um, but an explosion woken up in the middle of the night at three o'clock in the morning with an explosion. And so then in New York City, like living through stop and frisk. Oh, and then <laughs> I cannot believe I'm about to admit to this publicly, but I, when I was in college, I was actually arrested. Now, mind you, I did not do this, okay? And it was the judge left <laughs> this out, but I was in Rhode Island and was arrested for assaulting an officer. Had it had to do with someone that was working at a club doing promotions, and there was a situation where something was put in my drink early on in the night. When I did wake up, I went into defense mode. But anyway, long story short, there was no assault, but I scared the bouncer who was not allowed to be operating as a bouncer while day moonlighting, or excuse me, while a day job was police officer and running my mouth, right? Scared him into uh -huh. doing the arrest so that if I did make good on my threats from the night before, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Maybe I'll cut that out. But anyway, to then, <laughs> oh, and then in DC, I'll take it a step further. I went to college in DC when all of the um, tickets that were issued without, uh, what are the cameras where they can catch speeding? That is uh, maybe since. Ticket. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so you know how DC was one of the first. So I was in DC driving when all of that kind of was coming through. So to say that I didn't have a great deal of respect for the authority and saw all the harm, um, of course, that was happening. I was shocked and also really challenged to think about like a different life, a different path. <sighs> but that said, I can't believe that our conversations kind of went to that direction. Like, well, what do you think about you know, joining the team or pursuing this, this path. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is listeners, Chief Chris, these are words that he's sharing, but like I've fucking lived them. And if there's anybody that is more inclined to recruit from pools that are not <laughs> the traditional, um, like, you know, be a police officer model. It is this man. It is this man. And, and Chris, I would like to reiterate the judge laughed out that, that charge. And it was of course thrown out, um, very, very quickly once we got mm -hmm. to it. But that was a that was a, a a felony charge that that could have done a lot of damage. Maybe if I had a different skin color or we didn't hire an attorney that was the son of the Speaker of the House in, in Rhode Island. Like, and so all the abuses that come with positions of power, and I'm I'm talking broader than police officer, it's almost like the you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Like, how do you maintain? a culture that, I mean, I, I heard after action reviews, I heard learning from mistakes, I heard pulling in diverse human beings, but to be in a position of power like that and to not abuse it, I mean, how do you train for that? How do you empower around humility and staying humble 
you know, I think that's where your, your leadership team has to model it, right? It's one thing if your C-suite says, hey, we're all humble people and, you know, we're serving you. And meanwhile, they all disappear and um, never to be seen to serve or anything, right? So at least here speaking in our police department, it's long been the culture, not just me, but the chief before me and the chief before him, where we carried ourselves as if we're not better than anyone because that's what we believed, right? Um, it yeah. is not a far fetch for us to walk into the break room and pick up a little bit, straighten up the chairs, clean up the counters a little bit. Um, I, I do that because I believe one, it's a great opportunity to just have organic chats with people throughout the organization. But two, um, how in the world am I, would I expect anyone in our organization to want to keep a clean kitchen if I'm not willing to do my part myself, right? And, and it's not about like lowering myself or anything. It's just like, that's just the right thing to do. Um, and when we promote folks that carry those core values, um, not just cleaning up in the kitchen, but just that they, they see others, um, they, they see their role as serving others to, to help others be the best to their ability um, that will change the organization over time when you will reach a critical mass that there's more people in positions of power that carry that trait. And, and I look back in Mountain View PD and that, that shift happened about 20 years ago when we had, it was two chiefs ago, we went from a very traditional uh, old school, if you will, police chief to a new, I mean, his name is Scott Vermeer. He, uh, he came to us, I think when he was in his mid thirties, which is really, really young to be an, a chief. And he was different. And he, um, he was the guy who made the, the huge imprint on me because I'm getting promoted under him multiple layers. Right. And so everything I just described to you, I think he's doing, um, and I'm on the recipient side of it. And now as I find myself in a leadership role, um, you very much, you know, for me, I, I, I default back to, well, that's what I knew. That's how I was baked in the organization of where the core values were. And, and it wasn't always that way. So he came in and actually changed a lot of that, brought in a lot of that diversity of thought. And if there's anything like a leader who, who just basically says, you know what, you might not do things my way, but if you do it ethically, professionally, um, financially sound, right, go for it. And if you trip, it's okay. Dust yourself off and move on. Wow, so many things. So, sir, for anyone interested in Googling, um, I, I would start with the phrase "servant leadership," and it's something that I just got the chills. Even as I said it, that we don't we don't speak of often, and I, you don't hear it in conversations about leadership often anymore. And in fact, I'm reminded, I forget which book it was. It probably was a sales book, but it had to do maybe not, but it had to do with power dynamics and the advice given in the book was that if somebody drops the, a pencil, right, do not be the person to bend down and reach it and pick it up because then you'll be perceived as like the weaker human in the interaction. And so I mentioned that because like there's a lot of people that have been raised in police departments, in, um, you know, the military, in tech sales or tech in general that have not had that modeled for them. And you know what, Chris, like, I love how you knew the name of the person. And obviously you worked under and for him. So you had deeper insights, but knowing and studying the origination point 
of when a culture starts to change and how it generally can happen with the introduction of one human being is, I, I think, another phenomenal thing to, to study. But I guess the question here is, Chris, like, what would you say to an individual who wants to be that, that human being where maybe they're pivoting the culture, but they're surrounded or they're in a culture still um, that is not there yet? How and you know, assuming that we've made the decision to stay and make it better, like what would you say to that person who wants to um, be that first, you know, breadcrumb, if you will? So that's a that's a tough position, um, but it's not an impossible one, right? And and basically, you operate in the the sphere of influence you have. That might be your team, your immediate work unit, and you find your allies and your confidants, right? And that might be your, a, a level above, might be a level below, might be laterally a fellow team member. Um, you know, to me, it's, a, it's, it's kind of an optimistic leadership viewpoint where um, those types of positive attributes can be contagious, right? You, you, you know, you can be lazy and have an informal effect and, and drag the rest of the team down, right? Everyone has that ability and there, we've seen team dynamics like that. Or you can also be an informal leader and just be a motivation to others just through your actions, through your work ethic. And that can be very contagious. And I think that will be very quickly recognized by leadership and management. I would hope so. And I would hope that down the road that leads to promotions and opportunities. And I think at the end of the road, um, you know, I look back on my promotion path, right? If I was working in an organization that didn't appreciate um, this type of servant-minded leadership and servant-minded work ethic, then maybe it's like, that's not the right place for me, right? And, and, and in those situations, unless you have a lot of power, influence, authority in the chain or the organization, there's the, the likelihood that that type of organization changes is less. But if an organization sees this type of talent, this type of personality and, and promotes to that effect, um, I think that's a sign of a healthy organization um, and then, you know, over time, change will happen and positive and influential change. And, um, you know, with that positional um, uh, promotion comes a lot of, of responsibility as well, right? All eyes are on you. And um, that's where you really have to shine um, because now you're not only the recipient of that, that great kind of promotion, now you are charged with um, doing the same for others, right? Creating a space for others to thrive and, and realizing that, Maybe they won't do it your way, um, but to to just kind of create that dynamic in the organization that allows for it. Wow. 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 Oh, my gosh. So there's a guy, one of the top voices in our profession, his name is Andy Paul, and he did an episode with a guy named Dale Dupree. And and I they were talking about how. How. When, when you do that as the individual contributor, which is our word for the actual seller, or when you do that as the first apple, Dale described how poorly it was received. And I believe the quote was that, that managers will like actually lose their mind at the idea of a different 
way of operating, a way of doing things. And, you know, it was funny, like that episode and that line in particular really resonated for me because for, for a long time, I associated the resistance that I got when I pivoted to sales enablement, Chris, which is an internal function. Um, so it's adult learning. So when you were describing about like all the coaching programs or, you know, resources, like that's, that's kind of what, what I do for a living now. And that said, but I associated the resistance that I got when I first started right now, mind you, someone that was, um, you've seen me in front of a, in front of a room, like I was very good at influencing teams and buying teams in particular from and at, at a wide variety of organizations. And so when I turned internally and was trying to sell these concepts internally, it wasn't received well. And I, I guess looking back, I really wanted that to be a gender thing, but to hear Dale say it, it wasn't a gender thing. It was just a degree of fear, I think, on letting go of the old ways of doing things, even even the old ways that maybe brought some results, you know, which are relative, right? So, you know, what's to say that we can't do things better, but like it's, it has nothing to do with gender and it has everything to do with the character of, of the leader or the boss to be able to look at an individual that is operating maybe more autonomously at first, but then you know, doing so in a way to bring more humanity back into the buy-sell arrangement. But but that requires a lot of courage, too, on the leadership front to be able to let go a little bit. I mean, have you noticed that? Like, has that been an issue for you over there where um, maybe someone that's already in the manager position has had a, a harder time adjusting to the new or the next normal, but you guys were well ahead of the curve, right? Obviously, as someone that was teaching departments around the world four years ago, um, like what have or has that not been an issue really? No, it has. Um, you know, we're we're no different than any other organization. We we've had you know some find it easier and some find it harder to make that transition, and we still have you know some that will default to well, you know, if you want to you want to promote someone good, they've got to have the most arrests or or something, and, and you know, and I'll respond by saying, "Well, that's part of it, but there, there's more to that. We're, we're humans. We're a lot more complex." And let me add another layer to this discussion. I think it's a relevant one as you think about the state of society that we're in right now. And by that, I mean that we are a social media, smartphone-first society that will be more likely to text or tweet at each other than walk out our front doors and go talk to a neighbor. So if you take that layer and then add to a pandemic layer where people are now forced a year and a half into their homes and are just starting to come out, by and large, we as society have forgotten how to just even interact, how to disagree, how to dialogue with each other. Um, And that's just in general. Now you want to add in a layer of a workforce um, environment or clients and you know sellers, that type, anything you want to add to that mix, it's just that much more difficult now. And I think it would behoove us as a society to relearn those skills of um, face-to-face communications and even better yet, face-to-face disagreements um, and to be able to treat each other as humans despite maybe differing viewpoints. <laughs> Wow. Okay. So yeah, you're spot on and I'm chuckling at your, your proximity to big tech. 
um, and the implications. So there's like a million reasons why we're out of practice. And I, I'm, I'm laughing about even just the podcast as being one deep exercise or deep practice exercise with uncomfortable conversations for myself. And, you know, one of the things that, that I've mentioned a couple of times and for any regular listeners at this point, which hopefully maybe we're up to 50 right now. So, you know, one day at a time, but I was raised Chris at a, in a house at a table where we were asked, and I'm talking grade school, and I've got two sisters, two younger sisters. We're all 18 months apart, so close in age. But we were asked every day when we felt butterflies in our stomach that day. And the analogy was, uh, it was, you know, obviously age appropriate and maybe even gender appropriate uh, around feeling discomfort. And the when I did not have a specific thing to report back every night, like the implication was that I had not grown that day. And then I think about that. And this is an interesting way to be raised. Right. And so I, I learned, I was very fortunate in many ways where I learned to seek out discomfort and lean into discomfort, including these conversations. And so like this whole podcast is just, is a practice around having conversations and you are reminding me that I need to do a better job of bringing people on that I don't agree with um, so that we can, you know, actually get into that side of things. However, however, I think about the nature of information, right? And we could talk about LexisNexis and who owns police reports in a second, but like when we when we are interacting with apps and algorithms that are designed to capture and keep our attention, right? We are going to be presented with topics, even in our feeds, social media feeds, news feeds, whatever, that we're more likely to click on, therefore stay engaged and keep our attention. And so even when you've got two people that are, let's say they run a Google search for, you know, let's say police and community relations based on their previous search history, right? The algorithm is going to present them with a set of results, search results, air quotes around facts that are different than a person that's sitting right next to them. And so not only has COVID, right, impeded our ability to communicate, not only has social media impeded our ability to communicate across lines, right, specifically with people that we don't agree with, we can add into the, the mix the political environment over the past five or six years that has certainly impeded our ability to communicate or our desire to do so. But I think what's positive about the conversation like you and I are having is that when we give up, when we throw our hands up and say there's no point in trying to bridge divides or understand one another or have a conversation where we know going into it, there's going to be a difference of opinion and deep value judgments, whether it's vaccines, whether it's abortion, whether it's, um, you know, I'm sorry to use the word police brutality, but like, that's a thing. It's, there are so many things that are stacked against us as a society, but I think you're spot on when it comes to like, we have to do a better job of learning how to communicate through conflict, through 
differing opinions. And, and a lot of that, frankly, in my opinion, is, is a skill gap around understanding how value judgments work and understanding how we hear a word, right? Like police officer, and we interpret it as individuals very differently. And so even just having a precursor aspect to the conversation of just divining terms, right? And making sure that all parties engaged in the dialogue have a a baseline understanding of what each word means, right? These are the things that impede connection. And even when, when we're trying to have these conversations, when they don't work well, right? We want to assign blame or on the other person, they're so close-minded or they're not objective or they're not operating with facts. When they are operating with facts, there's just a completely different set of facts that they were given when they ran a Google search. And so conflict resolution, right? As it relates to teams is kind of where I'm thinking. And I I do want to leave some room to talk about information um, and and the current state of what you're working on as it relates to cyber crimes. Um, But conflict resolution and creating the framework to de-escalate is, I think, something that you'd probably have far more experience than I have. However, I think we need to start to see a lot of that inside companies and inside team cultures. And and it's almost a, a break from the mainstream opinion of like, you know, kumbaya or a, like a fake surface level kumbaya equates relational success because that is fiction. It doesn't work like that. And, and for more on that, consult, consult five dysfunctions of a team. But there's, I mean, hell, Chris, we, I don't even see this spoken about very often, again, from a company perspective. So I guess from a conflict, conflict resolution and de-escalating and creating policies and frameworks around that, like what have you seen? What's worked? What hasn't worked? Like what would you say to um, our listeners that maybe are looking to create something even from a, a soft leadership perspective where maybe someone is modeling those actions and activities but necess- doesn't necessarily have the position yet? What would you say on how to approach this? So let me use the backdrop of the summer post George Floyd and the national narrative discussion on policing and police reform, right? Very difficult topics. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would call it the the strategic path forward, like how how we here at the police department navigated that forward. And there's no real, um, there's no amount of research or facts that we're going to be able to throw at anybody to your point, right? Because um, everyone will come to a discussion with their, with their facts. And, and as we all know, as, as you eloquently pointed out, a Google search result will, will give you the facts that you were trying to find, but may not necessarily be, um, you know, the, the full picture. So um, our approach has been to focus on creating the, the safe spaces for dialogue. And that means safe two-way for our critics of policing, for our officers who are on the receiving end of that critique. And we created that in a pandemic environment where we, um, unfortunately, it was done over Zoom, but we invited our harshest critics in our community to join us for an eight-week kind of a, a meeting, a session where we just each week had a topic. You know, we we took great pains to create the safe space and and kind of a mutual respectful um, uh, handshake agreement that everyone will hear each other out. This includes the officers that, um, you know, that, that they're not there to explain everything. They're there to share their experience. 
And we've done this twice now, and we're about to start our third cohort, and it works. And I think for your listeners, um, it's not the kumbaya, but every environment has the ability, and this is up to the leadership to make sure this comes through, is to create the safe spaces for just dialogue. Don't worry about what the right or wrong answer is. Just create the environment so that people of differing backgrounds or issues or whatever can come together and leave together, right? Um, I think for your listeners, it sounds like there's a lot of startups out there. If you want to do right for this world and you want to make an impact on society and maybe reverse some of the damage done by a a social AI algorithmically driven um, social platform world that that got us here, you know, I've never seen a viral post that was either um, highly, 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 uh, you know, just it, it, it went viral because people disagreed, but were able to have a great um, discussion. To the contrary, it's either, it's either super great news, like, you know, puppies and lemonade stands and kids, or it's just vitriolic, um, politically charged topics, right? And, and for the most part, that's what we see go viral, and everyone goes into their camp, and society loses because of it. So, um, you know, for your listeners out there, if you can come up with some sort of product or way or platform that encourages uh, civil discourse and discussion and growth and maturing of a society's ability to communicate, um, there's probably a lot of money in there for you. Uh, I know you wouldn't do it for the money because if you're if this message resonates, you're doing it because it's the right thing to do for society. Um, so I'll, I'll I'll get off my soapbox for that for now. But <laughs> your turn, Amy. <laughs> no, you could you could stay on that damn soapbox as long as you want. And I'm frankly, I can't think of anyone that's more deserving to step up there. Um, not even deserving, but <sighs> more necessary. Um, and you know, so it's something that you said that it really resonated. It, and that was that you sought out your toughest critics and you brought them into the fold. I think the tendency to avoid vocal critics um, or maybe someone that is more well-versed in the debate, therefore able to have a competent discussion about the counterpoints um, is a really fucking baller move, man. I, I think that's awesome. <laughs> and I, I'm curious, like I want to, we used to call them round tables in legal and it's a word that we was used at, at Rev Genius, which was a community that I was very, very, very affiliated with. Um, but, but used in a different way. So round tables means a different thing there, which was a, a bone of contention. But anyway, so round tables as we use them was to get, and create these safe spaces, like these discussions that you're talking about, closed doors, and and most multiple of them, right? So there was some continuity on on the conversation and the relationships. Uh, I think giving people a chance to think about things that are spoken in between um, deep conversations like this is important. But anyway, we would then take the outputs of the conversation and put them into like a white paper or something, and. And it was some of the most brilliant developments on how to progress like the legal profession. So I was big in the access to justice, you know, this with Lexis and Westlaw and Thomson Reuters and shit. Um, mm -hmm. And that carried over into next requests, right? So public information, same shit. It, it's magical what happens when you create a space like that. And when you bring together people like that, 
with very, very, very different perspectives and who are passionate about the topic enough to be a vocal critic and therefore, you know, progress or reform or some kind of, you know, transformative justice, whatever that ends up looking like. It's absolutely magical what what happens when when you do those things. And it's both it's sad to me that it's avoided, right? People that disagree with us, we don't want to talk about, um, you know, politics with someone that we know to be like a, you know, <laughs> you know, they'd still rack the mega hat or whatever. Um, but the beauty of what comes when you're able to do that is undisputed. And after you do it a couple of times, it becomes a little bit more obvious and, and less um, wrought. And so kudos to you guys. And I'm curious, like, whatever happened with those conversations? What did you do with those forums? And I mean, did you bring any of it, any of the findings public or were there any policy shifts that were made? Yeah, you know, we um, we take their suggestions. Um, we incorporate them. We we actually a member of the first cohort becomes a member of the second one as kind of a facilitator. Um, and then that person who I'm thinking of has actually gone on to help us create um, resident citizen community um, advisory boards for me, right? We have a faith leaders council now as a result of that, that a cross section of the faith leaders in our city come and meet with me quarterly. And similarly, we have a, a Hispanic leaders uh, forum where they come and just have a safe place to just air out or just talk to me about any questions and concerns they have. And, and so I think the key thing, and this goes back to the very first point I made uh, at the beginning of the show, was our community felt heard, right? What would happen if we just said, yeah, yeah, well, we're the police. We know better. We don't have to listen to you or we'll hear you, but okay, whatever. That's a very different outcome. Um, but, you know, I can honestly say that people felt heard. And when people felt hurt, you know, feel heard, there's progress there. Um, if there's anything that that maybe wraps up our angst in society right now is, so many people just don't feel heard by anybody else, right? And so it, it's it's a skill that I think we all have to learn again. Um, but I think we all have to harken back to the fact that we're all humans and we're all fallible. And we've, we've all been through rough patches in life. And um, this is the type of stuff you find out when you actually step, step outside your, your house and, and talk to a neighbor or something, someone who may not look or sound like you um, and, and you'll find that, you know, before, before, you know, it, after about 10 minutes that we as humans, even from the most, um, different poor parts of society will have more in common than apart because we are humans and we've all had the human experience. Wow. Isn't that so fucking true? So a faith, like a faith, um, cohort, I'm thinking of you, John Durante and Point Pleasant beach. Um, this sounds like something right up your alley. Wow, Chris. Wow. And what you said about facilitating. So one of the members from the previous cohort will come into the next one and facilitate. So one of the projects that I'm closely affiliated right now is something called Take Care. Are you, you're obviously in front of your computer. Type into mm -hmm. um, a window. It's take T-A-K-E and care, but the A in care is the number four dot com. And so this is an anthology of stories really to normalize the messiness of of being human. And, you know, well, a lot of the hmm. times when it comes to wellness. And so anyway, so I, the two founders of, of Take Care, Mercy Lee Bell and Alyssa May Hart, both have different backgrounds. 
Um, Mercy's coming from tech sales and as a black woman and Alyssa, different journey experiences, events designer, um, and a lot of experience with Anon. I think it's a family member of the alcohol anonymous anyway. So this idea of recovery, but anyway, so I was brought in to, from a learning perspective, right? That adult learning perspective. And one of the things that I have been doing while listening to these stories is to think deeply on how to create like a facilitator's program around story listening. Step one, listen to your point. And then step two is to obviously share, share a little bit. And then of course, to facilitate the sharing of stories across peers. Um, and so this is again at that company or corporate level. And so I, yeah, I mean, you're speaking to my heart is what I'm trying to say with the empowering of facilitators. All right, Chief. Can Chris, I share a, uh, sorry, yeah. can I Do you share have a, a real hard, quick story? Oh, of absolutely. That, uh, Do you have a hard so, stop? No, I, I'm good. Um, then you take a, your damn a, time. Okay. Okay. So one of the hats that I wear or wore, I, I'm no longer a part of it, but I was, I served as a commissioner on a community relations commission um, for the city of San Mateo. And they had, I had an opportunity to attend a community forum, right? And this is probably 60 people from the community from all walks of life, different age, race, sex, gender, everything. And the facilitators for that day, their specialty was to work with, um, they create living room conversations between Palestinian and Jewish people, right? So you get, you think of in time, two groups of people that just did not historically get along, right? And that was their life's passion to, to put those people in a living room together. So they took us through this exercise that it really kind of touches on what you just brought up, which was um, find somebody in the room that doesn't look like you. And for five minutes, tell your entire life story, no interruptions. Now switch. Um, the other person for five minutes tells their entire life story, no interruptions. And what you will find, and this was the outcome of everyone that paired up, is that we are so much more alike than we are different. And I was paired up with a self-described hippie protester from UC Berkeley. And she could, she's talking to a you know, straight and narrow police captain at the time. And what you will hear, the common threads is what I touched on before, is people, everyone, um, as a human, we are not immune to hurt, to lost, to very difficult circumstances and times in our lives. And we are also not you know, immune to joy and, and all these different experiences we have as humans. And that only took 10 minutes. But you know, until we create that environment to do that, we will continue to see each other for what we're wearing, the color of our skin, um, the political affiliation we our come to the job, table with. Where we exactly. live, Everything. whether we're married or have children. Like, yeah. Yep. yep. So I'm saying let's let's create the space to break those down and get to know each other just as humans again. And I think a lot of good comes out of that. Oh my gosh, it's so true. That was the other thing for me, because I'm keeping a diary of like how I listen to this to all these stories. And it's funny because I have no experience with like chronic illness or um, uh, loss, like grief, like true grief. However, you're spot on in that there are so many more things that, that where we're alike, just 
by nature of being a human fucking being, then, then we are different. And this is where I think you're spot on. And, and also in your words, when you say about learning how to, you know, have conversations in the community and I, I'm so, well, I'm on the East coast now on the Jersey shore and it's our season. And guess what? I can leave the house in the morning and be confident in that. Like I won't have to bring a jacket as opposed to being in San Francisco, which there is no day where you can do that. But anyway, so we're coming into our season, but that said, I, I, I feel so great knowing that there's someone like you out there. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. So I want to talk about, so let's peg, let's say two fifteen. So let's say another 13 more minutes. Um, I want to talk about information and I want to talk about who owns what, and I think this is relevant. So I, Chris, when, all right. So listeners, when Chris and I first met, um, he obviously chief of police in Mountain View, and I had started with Next Request. I was the first AE and really kind of helped to build out the entire go, go to market um, function. And same thing, right? So this was a Code for America spin out, and so the founders were, you know, tech and designers, and so the the go to market skills. Anyway, so that said, we had just brought on our second AE who was responsible for the territory, right? And I wanted it to be that way so that this individual had, you know, the geographic proximity as, as we were learning and teaching. However, Chris, when you and I met, I wanted to go get a, I wanted to, I wanted to get a feel for the police department because we as a company were starting to think about the nature of video files and FOIA and public records. Right. And so that was something, this was pre-development, pre-tech. And so just getting us as understanding of the landscape, understanding how the police reports and information worked and all of the, the things that you, you really only learn best by listening and, and engaging in a true discovery and observation. And so listeners, Captain Chris or Chief Chris um, invited me to the department for the day. And you and I, Chris, do you remember, spent the day uh-huh all over. And I was so taken with the, the, the kindness in the, the investing of time, right. And (laughs) just a random, um, but I also was, it broke so many things for me. And that story I shared about being arrested for assaulting an officer, Chris, like at three o'clock in the morning, I was picked up and thrown into a brick wall um, by a bouncer that was also a police officer. So that was the start of that story. And so, but coming there and understanding, like when you said about Reed Elsevier owning the police reports and that every time that a, a member of the public was requesting a police report that that was a cost incurred to the department and also what the hell like why don't we own our own damn information to be able to you know give it back to the public upon request and so like there were so many things during that day i i remember understanding the um the design of a cybersecurity division and what that meant like to be able to say yes to help other to police departments from a resource perspective but also having to say no and so instead 
figuring out how to teach other departments how to, you know, recreate what you had done. Like there were so many things and even tasers were new at the time. And so like having an officer come off of a shift and not put the camera back onto the charge station properly so that the next day when a new, when another officer, you know, went to retrieve that device and set everything up, if it wasn't charged, then God forbid something happened. you know, so there's so many aspects when you're able to silence your advice monster, or I know that and go in with an open mind and let even let go of your own personal experiences. What, what I learned that day was just like life-changing. And so one, thank you for such a kind investment of, of time and, and again, in a random, but I guess like, has that, have things gotten better when it comes to read Elsevier, Alexis Nexus, like what's the story of, of information that's being generated by the department and, you know, being able to take ownership of the information that you're creating as a department. And, you know, I'll, I'll pause there. And same thing with tasers. Like what have you learned in the past four years? Uh, I think it's just different. Like um, now, you know, fast forward four years, we're dealing um, with just so much data, right? And I, this, I, I, the, the body cameras come to mind is, is I always joke that it's, you know, most of the pricing structures of the different vendors out there who sell body cameras is the camera, the hardware is, is cheap. It's the data storage. That's, uh, that's like the printer and the ink equation, right? So, um, and I know like most of the agreements that we sign and, and most of the, the vendors I've seen, you know, they will tell you that you own the data, um, but when you're talking like what, I don't know what's higher than petabytes, but when you're just talking about a gazillion whatevers of data, it's not as easy as, you know, shipping a, a case of floppy disks over and, and saying, yeah, yeah, can I have my data? Right. So I, I, we're in a new world. Right. And I think this, this is probably symbolic of, you know, what other sectors are, are dealing with too, is that everything is out in the cloud. Um, you know, for, for reports and stuff, we've, we've transitioned over to more of an in-house, you know, we, we use a lot of stuff on laser fish. So that's just more of an old school scanning kind of technology. And, and I'd say that we have a lot more control over that now. Um, but, uh, I think that the hard part is, is the footage, the video data. When you think about an officer who does eight to 10 hours on a shift and might record two to four hours of, um, video right times uh seven days a week 365 days a year and you have four to six officers per shift that's a lot of data and um data management going through that re, you know get dealing with public records act requests for uh photos and, and still trying to balance um you know privacy rights of a victim who might be seen on camera right a victim of a sexual yeah. assault or a domestic violence yeah those are those are manpower hours to go in and redact voice and their name address their blur their faces um, i know there's we're starting to see the emergence of some ai type of software that can start to tackle that for us but it's not perfect by any means so just to bridge the gap listener so this this software next request it was it was a way to expedite the fulfillment of public records requests. And so think about, you know, a situation where let's say you're a reporter and something happened and you want to grab the police report and the body cam footage or, or any other variation of maybe less, less um, big. Uh, 
it requires time. And not only that, Chris, it requires skills, right? I think of, you know, the, the municipalities that didn't have like, um, and any kind of e-discovery, um, algorithm where maybe checking emails for certain words was a manual ask. And so every minute that ticks by is an impediment to trust, right? Because the, the general assumption, when we're not given the information that we request from a public entity, like it's they're trying to hide something, which is definitely mm-hmm. not the not always, um, not even probably most of the time. It's, it tends to be a resource thing, a tech thing, and a skill thing, or a time function, and even help, Chris, with all the changing the nature the changing nature of data. Um, there's a, a continuous learning curve and or like updating of the tech that's required that maybe isn't necessarily as i mean i heard you say before that you found the budget to do um you know devote towards coaching which is a massive statement right there right shocking found the budget because it was a priority (laughs) but like that's not always the case when it comes to you know changing the tech um or bringing on a a, maybe a new skill set that's a little bit more niche and expensive, I guess you could say. And so, I mean, I know that you were handling that beautifully four and a half years ago, and I'm glad to hear that you've moved away from the, you know, <laughs> the, the reports, the Lexus reports that that aren't were not owned, um, which was just appalling, by the way. Same thing with law, like who owns the law? Guys, it's owned by two major corporations, uh, LexisNexis and Thomson Reuters, and it is... Yeah, same thing with with government research or um, academic research that is funded by by public funds um, that is then put behind a paywall. It's it's a thing, right? Worth talking about. But anyway, I digress. So, I mean, how's it going with with the community relations as it relates to to body cams, Chris? And I'm not necessarily just talking about Mountain View, but like since George Floyd was murdered. Like what, how, how, what kind of changes in the conversation have you seen around, you know, police and community relations since, again, this time last year? The challenge is the, so the challenge is when you have a disconnect where people want to talk about the national narrative and assume that policing is the same uh, across the country, uh, or they speak of police as a monolith. So what I mean by that is, there's over 18,000 police departments in this country, and therefore there are over 18,000 cultures, um, right? There's some progressive, there's some back in the stone ages and everything in between. Typically when people hear about policing, they're seeing footage from um, either like highly urbanized police departments, you know, no one's gonna, no news organization is gonna run a story about the eight member police department in middle of nowhere, USA, who are doing great things. It just doesn't lead the news, right? Yeah. So the public is kind of, um, and we, we felt this here in the Bay Area where, you know, they see the horrific footage of Minneapolis and George Floyd, and then immediately the assumption is, well, it must be the same here in Mountain View or in the Bay Area. And so the challenge is to, to take the national narrative topics, which are important ones to have, but really ask a follow-up question to everyone involved in the conversation, which is, well, what does that mean for us here? How do we do things differently or what, what's the same? And we took our community through those, those hoops, those, those discussion points. Um, and it's also worth noting that 
you know, there's a difference between lived versus learned experience, right? Most people, um, they will read something or see something that leads to headlines and they will kind of attribute that, well, now I have that experience. Well, you don't, right? You, unless you've lived an experience, it's very different than reading about it on a tweet or a post. And so the dynamic we see is a lot of people are kind of supercharged about and emotionally vested and, and rightfully so about what they see online, but that's a learned experience. Whereas um, a lot of the voices I see getting silenced are actually um, the minority voices. Um, there, there are many in the migrant communities, they're not politically active, but they're being kind of pushed aside um, by many, you know, with the hopes of, oh, you know, we're speaking for you. Well, maybe you are, maybe you aren't, but we'd much rather hear from those who have actually lived this experience, right? So it's, I think that that example is taking place across the country to different degrees. Yeah, it's funny. I read something um, about, well, so in Point Pleasant Beach, there's probably, I think it's like at least 40% of the houses right off Arnold Ave, which is like one of the main strips. Um, and Point Pleasant is beautiful. It's the northernmost point in Ocean County, right, right in between Philadelphia and New York on the ocean. International television cameras have been on the Jersey Shore really since as long as I can remember, starting with like MTV Beach House days. That said, one of my best friends from high school was uh, or is black. He's in LA now, but he talks about how he couldn't go even to Jenkinson's Pavilion um, when coming back, let's say summertime, once we were 21 or whatever, because of the um, reputation of the enforcement, and I'll put bouncers and and uh, into that category as well, but could not go to the town. And so now fast forward 15 years later, there is a sign, there were signs all over, we support the Point Pleasant Beach police. And I remember walking the dog and it was right in, it was the year anniversary of George Floyd and thinking about, wow, like I wonder how much thought someone has given to like what that reads like house after house when you're black and when it's on the anniversary. And then even, but then I I'll challenge myself on this, Chris, that there was a, an article that I read and it talked about the nature of symbols and, and movements is so I think black lives matter. And then, you know, we support the blue and the, the article was exactly what you were saying um, about applying more context and localization, not as in like different languages, but localization around the conversation. And so it in the article was actually advocating for, you know, having signs created that are about the specific police department as opposed to, you know, we support the blue with one, you know, broad brush again, without taking into account what that translates for other humans that, again, don't have that lived experience or learned experience, either one. Um, but then I, I also was challenged that I shouldn't be so quick to assume the worst and that these signs that were in support of the police department, right, based on the, the knowledge in the article, like that was exactly what should be done. And so I was able to take away from that conversation, like to silence my own learned and lived experiences and, you know, look for a better way but I will say this, that if there's any department that is where I know for a fact that these things are being approached in the most thoughtful way, like I know it's you. And I know that 
the giving back that you're doing to educate other departments to and communities um, to recreate some of the successes that you've identified on repairing the trust and rebuilding it and maintaining it once you've gotten there. Like I, I'm glad that that I'm in a world where you're also living and operating. And so with that, Captain Chris, or Chief Chris, oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> one, so last question, one piece of advice, or I'll say this is the last question and then I have one thought just to bring it back to our target audience or one question for you. But so the last question and someone that I ask all, all conversation participants, not guests, and we're certainly not having an interview, is what's your one piece of advice about uncomfortable conversations, which we'll come back to. But I mean, maybe this is a little bit self-serving and maybe me like seeking or wanting compliments, but also, you know, I was a, I was a seller in your trajectory and you saw something that was worth investigating as far as like, you know, bringing me onto the team for our listeners that are looking at building relationships or, or whatever, like, what was it about your, let's just say buying experience with me? that really resonated and caused and and listeners just you know captain chris or chief chris surprised me by setting up a meeting in a in the auditorium chris with like the entire department like all the right people all the department and then i was able to bring in reed and and our the ae that covered the territory but i was very surprised to have been given that platform and so for those that are are looking to recreate that type of experience with buyers, like what would you say or what do you remember about the interaction that was maybe a little bit different? And if you don't remember, remember anything, that's totally cool, Tom. We'll just go to the last question. Yeah, you know, I, I think if if I recall, it was that the difference with you is that I wasn't just getting a sales pitch. Like you were genuinely interested in the nuances of how Mountain View PD was different. Um, and I, I heard that, right. Maybe not through directly through your words, but maybe it's your voice inflection or your, your, your genuine interest. And to me that, you know, we, we, we are approached by vendors all the time. Um, and you know, the, the cold calling or the cold emails, um, are almost automatic deletes. We just don't have the time. There's just too many fires <laughs> going on, Yeah. but you know, for, for a vendor, for a salesperson to come and, and say, well, here, here's what I've got, but you know, tell me about mountain view. Right. And just to learn be, and what the, maybe the foresight of knowing that every jurisdiction is going to be a little bit different. And I think that opened up the the bridge to these, these further deeper discussions and, and for you to learn even more about mountain view and what, how we were different and, uh, apart from, from many others. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I think that's something, to, uh, a takeaway nugget of information for maybe the, the sales audience is, uh, you know, don't just stick to the script. You got to have to be a little bit nimble and, and know who your client is when you're doing that pitch. Yeah. And listeners, it's very difficult to show up in a conversation and come off as caring about the unique differences uh, special snowflake differences from organization to organization when you do not truly care about those differences. So that's, that's a starting point. Um, yeah. Oh my gosh. It was one of Chris, like it, I, I remember our time together and you, even though it wasn't my territory, it wasn't even my damn deal. Like I, it's in my top three experiences as a seller and as a human being and as a listener and as a relationship builder. And you were one of, again, top three, top five 
in my entire career, so much so that I actually really considered um, switching careers, which is, you know, uh, so probably one of the things that I'll be thinking about on my deathbed. Okay, sir. So final, <laughs> final, final question or like one, what would you say one piece of advice to our listeners about uncomfortable conversations? Don't be afraid of where they take you. Um, you may not always like what you hear and that's okay. It, it's not going to change who you are to hear something different. Um, and I think, uh, we as, as humans will grow and mature when we hear differences of opinion. And then you, you get more and more people who have that experience. And now you're talking about society having uh, a changing and maturing of our ability to talk. And I, I just think that's so much needed in this current place we're in, in society of, of the inability. I, I, unfortunately, I think we've taken a few step back, <laughs> a few steps back um, in maturity. But you know, if the pandemic has given us anything, it's given us an opportunity. And I, I think this next year or two is a real sweet spot to go out and talk to people who don't look or sound like you, uh, and and you will benefit and, and blossom as a human because of it. Here, fucking here, here, here. All right, sir. Where can people reach you if anyone's interested after this conversation? Um, I'm thinking keynotes, guys, anybody interested in like, you know, bringing in someone that knows what the hell is up and and thinking about how to staff for either a conference or for a uh, sales kickoff meeting like this is the man. So Chief Chris, where how can people find you? Um, if you want to see all the different work we've done, all the places I've spoken or whatever, that's that's LinkedIn. I'm happy to connect there. I'm, I'm on Twitter and Instagram as, as Chief underscore Shung. And I'll leave it up to your show notes on how to spell that last name because uh, it's it's a challenge. But um, have, you know. have you seen mine? Right. There's a silent H <laughs> exactly. in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's, let's hear it for the H's. Uh, but no, you know, I, I, uh, I, I do, you know, as much as I've kind of bashed maybe social media a little bit in this show, I do use it a lot. So if you want to connect, um, just come find me, do, Google search my name and we'll, we'll connect somehow. We'll take it from there. I, you know what, it's so true. I forgot about your Twitter presence. I, that was, I tweeted heavily during your session, if memory serves. That's right. Uh, okay. Well, when I, next time I come to San Francisco, my ass is I'm going to come knock on your door. Please do. All right, sir. Thank you for doing what you do. And to our listeners, thank you also for, for staying tuned for the conversation. I hope that we were able to deliver some value and, and bridge a, a divide there on, you know, maybe some of the differences across professions even. And so with that, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Chief Chris. And to listeners, truth, love, and joy, friends, happy selling. Bye-bye. Me again. No outro today because this episode is like long as hell. Once again, very interested friends and thoughts, questions, comments about the episode that I'd love to bring um, on the air for everyone. The number is 646-470-0248. Just give us a ring and, and leave a voicemail with anything you damn well want. That's a wrap.